Hey, we're making sounds with our faces. You know why we're doing that, Graham Goodwin? Because we are going to record part two of the hey. week in sports cars. And why are we recording? Recording? Sure. Uh, two parts? Well, it would have taken almost four and a half hours to do this in one shot, and we didn't have that time. So it's a Saturday, a little bit of a breezy Saturday here in Northern California. Beautiful outside, though. Skies are blue, tells us. We should really burrow in and have some fun. In the remaining questions, we did not get to what are things like for you there in the United Kingdom, and what are you well, doing, uh, by the uh, way? Well, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk with a headset on, but that's just me being facile. Good. Uh, no, it's about 27 in the evening. It's pitch black outside and absolutely freezing. path on the way down to the DSC bunker uh, was crisp with frost as I came in from uh, the kitchen uh, chez moi um, and yeah uh, getting ready with the usual pre-packing carnage around me for the first flyaway trip of the year that will be to the Dubai 24 hours for next weekend uh, with what looks like a solid grid 50 plus cars for that and some good names on it as well uh, so that's all kind of kicking around together with prep for the rest of the season but uh, pretty clear with the number of questions we got for this week's show, MP, that the appetite of the Weekend Sports Cars audience simply has not been in any way assuaged by COVID-19, has it? I thought you were going to say it was bigger than mine, which would have been a good fat joke. But yes, <laughs> well, you are the official selector in this listener-driven show. Y'all send in the questions. We do our best to not entirely embarrass ourselves with our answers where among the four categories should we go, noting that we dedicated all of episode one this week to IMSA and WC, ACO, ELMS, etc. Are we all done there? Is there anything left to get through? Oh, oh, mate, there is plenty left. I, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to lead from the front, lead the charge and storm into not IMSA, but the WC Asia Le Mans Series, LMS, ACO, WEC, Aslam's, Elms, ACO, as we call it. And at this point, you open up the Pandora's box of questionnage and fling them at me. Well, let, let, let's slow it down a little bit on storming into things after the week we just had here. <laughs> oh, Although God. I did, within the last 24 hours, read about one of the uh, five people who died. Uh, I don't know if there's been any veracity in the reporting, but there was one tale about a gentleman who uh, stormed into the Capitol with a taser either in a pocket or somehow fastened in his nether regions and managed to effectively tase himself to death in the what? boy parts. Yes. Uh, so this almost sounds like uh, a crazy racing tale, but yes, so... Not that that has anything to do with anything, and I don't even know if it's real, but just the thought of someone uh, tasing themselves to death in the boy parts while trying to... Uh, they were trying to steal a portrait of former uh, Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. It's just something where you go, no, no. Is, is there an alternate universe where the onion truly has come to life? So it really has to be. So, uh, yeah. albeit it's tragic. So no. Uh, oh yeah, that's tragic. Yeah. No storming though here. So we'll uh, we'll, no, we'll keep that to I'll a minimum. Jeff Easterling, you have either the great great 
honor and privilege of opening the show, or we have pretty much sealed uh, your fate uh, with the terrible news that, yes, your name was read first on this dumpster <laughs> fire of a show. Uh, we are getting into a topic here that says, assuming that Acura goes forward with an LMDH program, Graham, would they more likely compete under the Honda banner if they rock up at Le Mans with that LMDH? Um, it's a very interesting question, isn't it? Uh, we've seen the HPD brand at Le Mans previously. Uh, Acura, you will be aware, MP, I'm sure, is an almost exclusively North American brand. For 100%. There you go. Um, so, And we have seen uh, cars that have been branded as Acura or HPD elsewhere, branded as Hondas in Europe before. My guess would be, and it is a guess, is that you would likely see some form of dual branding on those cars. It would have to be entered as something. And my guess is, depending if that's going to come down to who's paying the bill, is the reality. Uh, but my guess is that if it was entered as an Acura, you will see the word Honda on the side of those cars. If it's entered as a Honda, you will see the word Acura on the uh, side of those cars. And that is so that the we poor Muppets in the TV booth get to talk to both those audiences, the North American audience, the Acura savvy audience, if you like, and the uh, Honda fans in the rest of the world. So my guess would be it would be entered as a Honda, uh, which, by the way, might help with a little bit of the funding coming uh, from Japan rather than the United States. But it's going to come down to who enters the car. It's as simple as that. There we go. Well, that was your episode of the Week in Sports Cars. No, okay, hold on. We got more to do. Sorry. Uh, Stathis Coco, holy cow. We got Stathis right up near the top of the show, buddy. You're, you're on the podium of questioners. Asks what might be intentional comedy? I don't know. Any update on Ferrari's Le Mans hypercar program? The info we have so far is, quote, seriously evaluating. Uh, Graham, can you tell us if there's any hit, hint of uh, what might be coming in regards to the Scuderia. Um, there's some interesting stuff going on with Ferrari at the moment. And I know we've got a further question, by the way, uh, from Gustavo Bamba, uh, which talks about the uh, recent expansion of Fiat Chrysler Auto. It's not quite as hard-wired into Ferrari as it used to be, remember. Uh, so that's not quite as straightforward a question as you might think. Question, uh, sorry, uh, information coming out of the world of Formula One, which is always notoriously um, rumour-strewn, uh, is that there is a technical centre being established um, at Marinello for the Ferrari customer teams. Now, that's an interesting move. This is Formula One customer teams. Uh, interesting move, because is that a way for Ferrari to get around the cost caps that are incoming for Formula One, which, by the by, are the route that most people had determined would be the way in which Ferrari would fund a LMDH slash hypercar program. So the immediate answer is no, there is no further um, news on it. Uh, you will see, I'm sure, lots of rumour and speculation, lots of use, uh, use of the word could and might. They have made absolutely no announcement. Are they evaluating it? I'm 100% certain that they most certainly are. They must surely know that the time for any kind of factory-blessed GT uh, representation at Le Mans is winding down super, super quickly. So I'd be astonished if they weren't actively or hadn't actively evaluated it. 
Um, for those that haven't followed this story, why are we talking about Ferrari in particular to do with Le Mans hypercar? Well, for two reasons. One is that they generally would not want to use a chassis that can be branded as anything else. In other words, they wouldn't want to use a uh, Orica chassis, for instance. It would have to be a Ferrari chassis. They're not allowed to do that with LMDH. And the other thought would be neither would they want a Ferrari badge on something that features spec parts. So hypercar appears to be the angle they would take. Um, it's an interesting one, is it? I, I personally, MP... Ooh, you personally, do you say? Personally, I, I can't see them staying away. It, if this is going to be as successful as I think most people think it will be in terms of the numbers and the quality of manufacturers that are going to turn up here, if that starts, well, we can always see, already see that it's beginning to come to fruition. I mean, are Ferrari attracted by Peugeot coming and Toyota coming? No. Are Ferrari having their heads turned by the fact that we'll get, for instance, Porsche, maybe uh, McLaren at some point? Yes, because that's where their marketplace is. So I would be surprised with the very likely uh, confirmation that GTE Pro will go away in a year, maximum two years' time, my belief, um, then I'd be surprised if they stay away. But as for any immediate solid information, uh, the answer to that status is absolutely nothing. And that's traditionally the way they tend to, to do it. There'll be lots of leakage of, oh, you know, here's an idea that might uh, might possibly happen, but they are notoriously Machiavellian about the way in which they do this. As you will know from IndyCar history, more than once MP, um, they uh, notoriously have used the bargaining chip of taking their primary or, you know, a high-profile um, program elsewhere to get what it is that they want out of the Formula One rulebook. Another thing I'd throw in here, Graham, and I, I don't know if it's 1% accurate or 100% accurate. Knowing that the original expression of interest in either IndyCar or LMH, or I should just say WEC in general, prototype something or other, came from Ferrari while talking about Formula One's upcoming and new budget cap, not being able to keep all of its people employed, some comment about an arcane law in Italy that says you can't lay off good people for no reason, blah, blah, blah. We need to find a program or project to comply with Italian law uh, and hold on to these people. Therefore, branching out into one of the aforementioned series could be a thing. I haven't heard that mentioned at all since, so I'm just, again, wondering if that was a throwaway excuse. But other thing that stands out, and again, this is the, I don't know if it's 1% or 100% accurate or zero maybe, think along the lines of McLaren, right? When Zach Brown came on board, whatever that was, three, four years ago, he expressed an interest for McLaren to get into IndyCar and to possibly do more things to branch out in the same way we've heard Ferrari mention they might. But he put a very hard, hard uh, caveat in there saying, but hey, our Formula One team's kind of sucking right now, and that's our primary business. That's our primary thing. So ambitions, yes, but only after we start to get our Formula One program pointed in the right direction. No, we got a little bit of a difference here. Now there's a budget cap in place and some of those things that could factor into Ferrari's decision-making uh, process. But I do have to wonder, Graham, of, 
hey, yeah, we might go play around in some other championship while our team was at its worst I have seen since early to mid-90s. Ferrari coming off of a season where they were just, it was terrible. Part of me wonders, do we need to consider the timeline where this was originally mentioned before what I don't, again, I don't exactly remember, but was the season shut down? Had it even started yet? Uh, I don't know, but I do know that by the end of the season, Ferrari's in such a place in its primary motor racing competition endeavors that they were just terrible. And so the idea of, oh, hey, and guess what? We're going to go do something else and possibly dilute some of our resources. I wonder if and how that might factor into this question of, hey, Ferrari, Lamar Hypercar, when are they showing up? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, who, where, when, or what to ask these questions to on the Ferrari side, but it seems like they should be asked by someone. I tend to agree with you. Would it surprise you to uh, be reminded that Zach Brown originally went to McLaren in November 2016? There we go. So that's, so it's what, four, four and a half years now? Yeah. That's Something crazy. like that. How there you go. Crazy. Things, things move along. They most certainly do. So that's status and Gustavo. Speaking of moving along, look at that little yeah. transition. Rob Chalmers. How you doing, buddy? Says, uh, seeing how LMDH is now due to land in 2023. Do you see these zero emissions regs being pushed back further uh, as more OEMs commit to DH because he says pronounced duh because simplified hybrid uh, talking about LMDH. Uh, it seems only logical rather than asking OEMs committing all the resources for a one year program because the following year there'd be a, a shiny new thing. Uh, I think the answer there is don't presume it's the same manufacturers for starters, uh, because my understanding is for the most part, for the most part, it isn't. Um, the last conversation I had about exactly that question, Rob, was with Pierre Fion, and it was in September uh, at the Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, and at that point, he was pretty bullish about pushing on for 2024. And I think the indication was that there might be somebody ready with something that might not be dramatically different to a garage 56 car for the centenary year. So um, I think they've probably got two or three manufacturers that uh, are interested in doing something uh, pretty high profile amongst the ones we know that aren't um, are Toyota, which was a surprise to me counting that one out and believing it's all a little too early uh, for them. But the, the answer at the moment, best indication is no delay. Whether or not the realities of um, the automotive trades uh, financial position have impacted either in the latter part of last year or with this seemingly turbo-boosted second wave that we're now in the midst of, um, I think is – are going to be an interesting question. I hope to be getting a bit of time with Pierre when we see him out in the Gulf for uh, the Asian Le Mans series uh, next month. Gotcha. All right, where are we going to next? Matt, Matt of the Hockey Hawkins tribe. says, Graham, can you see the WEC flipping its 2021 calendar? Given the new variant of COVID is gripping Europe, uh, could they start over in Asia and maybe finish in Europe? 
what can you what can you share here? Because I know I we talked that, about calendar a bit on part we one, did, but, but I we like talk- Matt's angle. Yeah, we didn't. He's he's right to ask the question. Unfortunately, the answer is no, uh, Matt. No prospect of that. And for the evidence of that, just look at what's going on at the moment with the Asian Le Mans series. Uh, bailed from their Southeast Asia initial uh, calendar for exactly those reasons. And there are significant issues of getting people and things in, but in particular, getting people and things back in. Uh, so it is far from done. Uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, significant controls, um, very many of the markets, the places that uh, the Asia Le Mans series, and for that matter, WEC might looking to go to. So the answer is zero prospect of that. I think, as we said in part one, far more prospect, I believe, that if they decide that Sebring is not going to happen, uh, that what we might see is an additional European round. That would neither be shocking, surprising, nor would it be anything other than sensible, I think, at this point. Significant challenges on the logistical and health management fronts. Okay, we're going to Chris Alfby. Chris, how you doing, brother? We got two Two from Chris. Look at that. Mm. He's so giving. That, I mean, <laughs> offline, Chris, we talk about that a lot. So we just appreciate you uh, living up yes. to that expectation. Is there a possibility of United Autosports and McLaren linking up for an LMDH project? He says, seems McLaren have lightened up lately on the seemingly world domination idea they had a few years ago. I think that it wouldn't be a stretch, would it, to see United Autosports uh, looking towards the potential for McLaren, of course, with Zach Brown uh, involved in both companies. Uh, as Zach said to me when we were talking at the start of 2020 about uh, United Autosports uh, move into GT racing, which happens this year with GT4, and the plan at the moment is into next year, 2022, into GT3. And they hope, I believe, with an IGTC program with GT3. When I asked him... Um, because, of course, they just obtained Strecker Racing, whether or not it might be with AMGs that they already had, which, by the way, are now, now sold, or whether or not they might go with McLaren. The answer was, it's McLaren. I know a guy. Um, and I think that approach might, again, come into place. One thing United Autosports have been very, very good at, and where I think there is a significant misunderstanding for very many people about the way in which that company operates, This is not a team where Zach Brown is just sinking multi-millions of dollars to dominate. The vast majority, the vast majority of their programs are commercial. In other words, someone is paying um, for some or all of the drivers to be in those cars that is not the team. Uh, There are sponsors on those cars. There are real sponsors. And very many of those sponsors are linked uh, uh, in business terms, either to United Autosports and their various partnerships or to the drivers. A, a great example of that, Jim McGuire and Aero, you'll see in those cars. They have been very savvy in terms of the way they, they operate commercially. And I don't see any difference, any change coming for that, for what they finally choose to do uh, with LMDH. You, you can't look at United Autosports and see the success that they've had and more to the point, MP, then go and see their astonishing new facility uh, and think anything other than this is a team that has got their sights firmly set on the very highest level of sports car racing. Um, I am aware 
of broadly speaking what some of the options are for them. Uh, not all of those options are in their own gift. It does require uh, manufacturers, plural, to make the decisions uh, that they might want um, to to make. They have options, as does every team carrying a large kind of uh, bankroll uh, into a season. Um, but there's a large number of very hardworking people in that team in Yorkshire. When I visited them in November, I think it was, uh, Richard Dean, co-owner with Zach Brown, told me he had 27 driver seats to fill for the season. 27, oh. which is completely ridiculous. And at the stage we were talking, very few of those had actually got contracts inked. Um, you know, uh, we're beginning to see more than a trickle of those uh, those seats now being filled. But uh, do I think that McLaren are a shoe in for it? I think it's a fair bet that they're going to be on a very short list. But uh, can you ink McLaren LMDH next to United Autosports? No, you can't, because they most certainly are going to have other options than that. Look at that. Uh, Chris, you have one more for us here. That's right, your your own little doubleheader. Is there any update on the Baikalis LMH? Maybe it's just me being out of the loop lately, but I haven't seen much. Oh, Chris, don't put that on yourself. Like you not being in the loop somehow has led to missing a flotilla of Bicolis information. Um, no, no, I, Colin Collis was on the phone earlier. We, we had a chit chat about, you know, dentistry. Culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of that. Kind of, no, I didn't. Of course, I didn't. Absolutely no clue is the straight answer. They could turn up with an LMH. They could turn up with an LMP1 grandfather. They could turn up with anything uh it's a straight answer um by collis bless could them. turn up they, with turnips that would be even better they could um but you know they've promised they're going to be there it would be fair to say that the latest render we saw of their hypercar did look remarkably similar to their lmp1 car um we'll we will see i i'm aware of part of the package i'm aware very much that it is a live program this is not a program that is dead in the water it, it is a live program that that much i will absolutely confirm time frame they tend to be about as good as communicating as certain senior members of senior governments, plural, are at the moment. Oh, um, we got a political insertion here. I'm so no, happy. No, no. You've got a, what you've got there is a communications insertion there. Um, it's, uh, it was but you a, said a, the a, word government, so that means we're going to get complaints I? now. You did, because, see, we just two we spoke about coming. politics. Bad, Shh. Graham, bad. Do that. Do that. No okay, doggy treats for you. <laughs> it's not left anyway um guess why but uh do i expect them to be there at some point would it be a surprise if they weren't there for the first race <laughs> no um uh, but do we know that's the case no you know, it, it, you know in some ways mp it's just they, they are that kind of they bring a bit of the old fashion back into motorsport where you genuinely didn't know what was going to happen when you turn up at the first race. As I was talking to one of my um, print colleagues at uh, Bahrain and in a fit of you know, slight frustration about um, – he, he came along and we're chatting and he said, I've got this nice little snippet, to which my answer was, no, we wrote that last month. And he gave me a little bit of a kind of a hissy fit. That's the problem nowadays. You know, you guys on the internet, blah, blah, blah. 
And he's right. You know, the minutiae we can get into and do it so quickly, it, it has affected the, the kind of some of the unknowns that you used to get turning up into a paddock and go, oh, what's that? You know, the, 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 the thought that you would turn up in a paddock anywhere in the world nowadays and be properly surprised that something is there you weren't expecting barely even begins to con- uh, to be a consideration nowadays but it certainly used to be the case 20 to 30 years ago uh, that's it's a that's by collar in that world um and god bless them you've got to kind of love and admire them a little bit for that can i offer a suggestion that the most valuable contribution by collis brings to the WEC really has nothing to do with the racing in the on-track part. It's the intrigue around what they will or won't do because we spend more time talking about will they or won't they on whatever topic. Will they turn up? Won't they turn up? How are they going to turn up? Who's going to drive? Who won't, etc. It's all, all the ways, all times, all everything by Collis what is the big information void or gap and how might that play out when we do get to go racing and almost never, Oh, Hey, did you see what the uh, Bicolis team did during the race? It's just one of those things where you go, <laughs> I don't even frankly, I don't know if I really give a shit about how they do at race X because that's not the fun part. It's the, Oh yeah. They're the, the ones they're the Stonewalling, they they're the blustering, flustering, filibustering uh entrant that don't say nothing to nobody about nothing. And then they just rock up somewhere and you go, Oh, hey, there you are. Okay. Um they, they, I love they, they that. there's indeed, no one like them. They are the Steve the Pirate, aren't they, of WEC. That's what I think they are. They kind of there's you need to have watched the particular movie in that they behave in a very odd fashion for no apparent reason, um, and everybody is sort of intrigued by it, but no one really asks the question. And when you do ask the question, everybody goes really hushed. Uh, so I think the answer is look, love them. We'd have one fewer thing to talk about, wouldn't it? Uh, wouldn't we without Bicolis? But uh, you know what? They'd probably come out and blitz the field. Wouldn't um, that be amazing? We, that like crush the field nine <laughs> lap they, victory if, if they if they got it right and everybody else got it wrong by collis win lamont but here's the point here's the really interesting point about this one colin collis doesn't give a shit no he doesn't care about all no not at all he's gonna do it he's gonna do it his own way and you know in some ways you've you've sort of got to oh, wouldn't you quite use the word admire but you've kind of got to give yourself a wry grin at that thought that people you know, are very interested in the minutiae, and they most certainly are the minutiae, but um, he doesn't care. He, he just doesn't care. He's a, um, a DGAF all-star, doesn't give a bleep. Oh, yeah, that, uh, that might be a great name for the team. All right, Graham Goodwin, let's see. Where else do we uh, – hey, what? We're done. I think we're ahead getting around, mate. We're, well, but are we? Uh, I see are at the gonna- bottom – uh, I see a couple here at the bottom that are pretty good. Uh, our pal Baxter, Andrew Backus says, what's the over under on SCG complaining about Lamont oh, hypercar see. BOP, uh, for the Sebring race that they aren't attending. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I think the answer there is like, yeah, I mean, you spoke to Jim quite recently, haven't you? Uh, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, something like that. Has that story gone up yet? Yeah. 
I get so apologies. I've had my head in oh, stuff. Um, look, I'm many days late. Most people have read all the pertinent bits, but uh, yeah, he did share some couple of fun nuggets in there. But, but before we get into that part of it, I mean, that's just Jim. You know, Jim is he's a great disruptor, and again, in a completely different way to Colin Collins. You know, he's another part of the fun jigsaw of an endurance racing paddock. And the great thing about about Jim is I can and you can go in and ask the most pointed question and he will give you quite an animated answer, but he does not take offense. He does not take offense as long as you're respectful, as long as it's a genuine question. He doesn't take offense. He, he is, however, what I would describe as a bit fighty. Um, it, it, you know, he's up for the scrap. He wants to make this, you know, a confrontation, uh, not in a kind of violent way, but he wants the kind of the thrill of the being a bit of needle. I think he feels that that's missing from some of motorsport. Defiance, so, big part of yeah, his yeah, personality. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, I've said I've said this to to Jim's face. Um, the I remember his, his initial. Um, facial expression in response to me and then what it melted into. Um, and you know, we were talking about the plan. This was way before the 007 was ever announced, okay, uh, sitting in the paddock um, at uh, the Nürburgring 24 hours. And he said, well, what, what do you think? What do you think people think? And I said, I think what people see, Jim, is you bring these astonishing cars here they're not really quite sure what to think of you and what to think of the efforts. And I always say when given the opportunity to say to this to people one-on-one, in this case um, through the weekend sports cars, more than one-on-one, you are the very, very best sort of nutter. You're the kind of nutter that is just driven by absolute passion for what it is you are doing. And thank you for it because what you're doing is something altogether different Um and because you're doing something altogether different, and frankly, because you're spending your money and nobody else is doing it, you can say what the hell you like. You're part of that party. You know, whether or not that, that engenders respect amongst the other the other players, you know, you get a choice as the person signing the checks as to whether or not you give give a stuff about that. And it's pretty clear that he doesn't give a stuff. He wants to be a disruptor. He's enjoying that role. You know, we'll wait and see how that plays out on a world championship uh, stage. Um, it has to be said that uh, my good friends at the Automobile Club to the West do not have a particularly glowing record of embracing that mindset uh, in a paddock, um, as Lawrence Tomlinson at Janetta found, you know, um, repeatedly. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting season where they are the outlier um, in a brand new class of racing that will be the vanguard of something much bigger coming in a pretty short period of time. Right now, they are the Aston Martin foil to Toyota. Aston Martin aren't there. Glickenhaus are there. It's not a joke. It's a real car. Uh, they've got real proper technical partners. And he has got 
um, chips in this game. So he's perfectly within his rights to basically offer an opinion. He's certainly within his rights, by the way, if he hears people saying that LMH is vastly more expensive than LMDH to put figures on the table to say, not the way we're doing it, it's not. Because that's one of the things that uh, that Jim is actually saying. And all he's really doing, I think, MP, is, is to put a big red line underneath rather than through the point that you made in part one, which is this intel that's coming back about the delta times of these cars. What he's saying is you've got a much bigger job through a BOP process slowing down a hypercar than you will uh, getting that LMDH into a performance envelope. Effectively, what you're doing at the moment is it's tumbling dominoes, isn't it? It's You've got to get LMP1 down to an LMH performance window, and then you've got to get LMH down to an LMDH performance window. Uh, because there's no doubt in my mind at all, when you look at the capabilities technically of those hypercars, they may, dumbed down from an LMP1 they may be, slow they most certainly will not be if they run in a reasonably unrestricted fashion to the performance parameters that are laid out. And it's going to be a very big job. And what Jim is doing in his own inimitable fashion is pointing out what should be obvious to everybody concerned here, which is don't assume balance of performance is going to be easy. Uh, and said it before, I'll keep saying it. There is the opportunity to prove that this year, prove their ability this year with at least one um, uh, grandfathered LMP1, which is going to need to lose, what, 15 seconds a lap? Uh, at least two hybridized uh, Le Mans hypercars from Toyota, which we will see officially for the first time on the 15th. Um, and at least two uh, non-hybridized uh, hypercars from Glickenhaus, three we hope with Bicolis. Um they are three very different platforms. They are going to have to have a balance of performance applied to them. And it better be good because that's where the confidence of the manufacturers and for that matter, the partners between uh, ACO and IMSA are going to be judging just how big a job they've got coming into 2023. Wow. You want to know how high quality the show is? He just used the words Vanguard and Inimitable. Wow. <laughs> We're like Actually, smart they, and stuff. By, by the way, Vanguard, name of an, uh, the very last battleship in the Royal Navy, uh, which my father served on. There you go. Wow. Did your father do something to make it the last? All right, we're not going to get into uh, that. I think he probably did. It famously almost wiped out Portsmouth as they tried to um, uh, tow it away to be scrapped. It broke its toe at the exit of Port, uh, Portsmouth Harbour and nearly rammed a pub. Uh, there's some fantastic photographs online if you've not seen it. it it's un unreal, this massive uh, battleship, the, the, what looks like mere inches from the pub window. Um What's next, mate? I thought you were referring to the Portsmouth football team, like it just started firing on them in the middle of a oh, match. Oh, that, so that, that, there's been weekends where they've deserved it. I'll be <laughs> honest with you, but there you go. We're going to move on from one militaristic uh, mention to another. Herr General and um, Daniel Summerskill. Never, Ooh. Heard of him. No. never. Happy first New time. Year, Daniel. 
indeed. What are you most anticipating in 2021 on the sports car front? Hashtag me personally, says Daniel. He'd like to see the liveries in the top class in the WEC. This goes to the Porsche GT team too, that feature color combinations other than white, gray, black, and red. Well, what am I looking forward to? Uh... I know that all races happening on the schedule we have seen announced is not something that's going to happen. So I would ask if I could look forward to something that was going to happen, and I feel like it might again. It is the unpredictability that came with those calendar adjustments and just a very different flow to the season in many championships. I think the ELMS ended up having probably its greatest year of competition. There was so much great racing that took place. So would the year have been as amazing if everything had just happened 100% normally? I don't think so. IMSA as well, uh, the season finale at Sebring was fascinating. Some of the other races as well, uh, it just seemed like being out of rhythm ended up giving us some different and more unique outcomes. So I realize that the thing that I'm looking forward to involves COVID's unfortunate and ongoing presence in our lives. But since it's here and we expect it to have some sort of knock-on effects of moving the calendar around a little bit in a variety of championships, uh, I guess I'm just hoping that the ongoing unpredictability and kind of wacky outcomes in a variety of championships remains because boy, that did help to uh, distract those who needed distractions, uh, amuse those who were uh, maybe feeling they were living amid darker days or otherwise. So I actually am thinking Graham, that if we were just having a normal year, normal season, everything going according to plan, might be a little bit of a letdown coming off of uh, what we saw in many, not all, but many of our beloved sports car championships last season. Yeah, I mean, I'll add my thoughts on this one, which is um, I think what I'm looking forward to, I'd love to be able to say I'm looking forward to seeing a major uh, motor race with tens of thousands of fans there. I just don't see that happening. It's a straight answer at the moment. Um, You know, we in London are uh, in the middle of a serious uh, an outbreak of this, as we've seen. Uh, the figures yesterday, by the way, Marshall, that uh, from the London Mayor is that one in 30 people in London has COVID now, which is astonishing. Um, I'm looking forward to some of the manoeuvring we're going to see from some significant current players, and I'm guessing some emerging players, the manoeuvres we're going to see from them towards where we expect to be in 2023. That's what I'm looking forward to. We've already seen a few of that, of those, with drivers we wouldn't necessarily be expecting to see in the cars they are racing, particularly GTE and GT3 factory drivers turning up in uh, LMP2 cars. Uh, There are other significant announcements coming, uh, and some of them very soon in terms of drivers and teams you would, ex- uh, you would expect to see in perhaps other series and other cars. Uh, so there's some real interest coming on that front. I think what we're going to start to see emerging this year um, and certainly much more of it into next year uh, is going to be this transition, a transition from the 
I guess the first era in the WEC class system to the next era. Yes, this year is the is the eve of hypercar, but uh, for me, it all really kicks off in 2023, 2022-23. And I think what we're going to see there is, we talked already about United Autosports. They're a great example of it. Jota is another great example of it. You know, there's any number of teams, both sides of the Atlantic MP, Wayne Taylor Racing, we can see clearly what their ambition uh, is, for instance. I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think we're going to hear a lot about that. We're going to have a lot of stories of people that will try and not make it. We will see a lot of people looking to try to to get their way into a car you wouldn't expect them to be in. And it's going to be very, very interesting as to just exactly how successful otherwise those guys will be. Great example of that is the likes of Kelvin van der Linde, Nicky team, Christopher Meese, who'll be having their first LMP2 outings in the coming weeks and months. Uh, I look forward to how that pans out. Um, and I particularly look forward to the the hope that we're not going to see very large numbers of people with God-given talent sitting on the sidelines because, you know, factory programs uh, are, are basically just ebbing away over the next couple of years. That's what I hope we're going to see. All righty. Uh, let's see. Uh, Where else do you want to go in her morning I think is the first time question. Our pal Drew go. Wetzel, yes, who Drew joined Wetzel, first time question. Uh, the true. tweeters, I believe, just to uh, submit questions. Wow. Yeah. There you go. He says, uh, uh, first time questioner. Yeah. I've been a lifelong IndyCar fan, but my eyes have been opened to sports car racing this past year. Aside from the main WEC, IMSA, ELMS, and ALMS races, what one other series would you suggest watching? A feeder series to those or something different? Why don't you uh, fire off here, Graham? Um, I, there's several. I, I would suggest you, you find out you know, what floats your boat, is the honest answer. Amongst the ones that I would certainly suggest, and thank you, by the way, for mentioning both the Asian and the European Le series in amongst those top things, because as Marshall says, the quality of racing there is fantastic. Stateside, I hope we're going to see something better this year from GT World Challenge America. We're certainly beginning to see cars emerging for that. But uh, the Michigan Pilot Challenge, certainly well worth it. Um, not always might I say MP because of the driving standards that are on display, but for sheer entertainment, uh, my God, it doles that out in uh, dumpster loads. It most certainly does. Rest of the world, I always thoroughly enjoy. Um, I have enjoyed talking about it on air in the past, and I've certainly enjoyed sitting in the press room and watching it uh, last year. The um, the Michelin Le Mans Cup, which is the LMP3 GT3 support series to the LMS. But the one that I absolutely think you should just take a look at and see whether you like it. Some people absolutely love it. Some people can't get on with it. Super GT in Japan. Um, uh, depends on where you are in the world as to whether or not you can get it. There is uh, a live um, English language feed. Uh, for Super GT, but Super GT, which is GT500, effectively silhouette um, GT cars based on realistically something which is more a prototype chassis, hugely powerful, massive tyre war, 
between multiple tyre manufacturers and the three big names in Japanese racing, Toyota, Nissan and Honda, with multiple cars, with multiple fantastic Japanese drivers, with some stars are sprinkled as well with some bigger uh, names from Europe and beyond. A GT300, uh, which has got three platforms in the same class, uh, the FIA GT3 spec cars, uh, the uh, mother chassis cars, which is effectively a spec chassis, effectively a silhouette car, and then the um, JAF GT300 cars, which are altogether different. Again, uh, I, it, I, I find it fascinating. I, I genuinely do. But take a look. If you can't get the live feed, have a quick look on YouTube. There's plenty of stuff on YouTube you can pick up from there. Uh, if you look to get a, a um, bit of background on it, uh, Pop on to dailysportscar.com into the search engine, put RJ O'Connell. He's uh, my buddy that does our Super GT stuff. He is the absolute sensei of Super GT in the English language. Um, get yourself enthusiastic about it um, and sit down and see whether or not that floats your boat. Anything I, I've missed, MP, that you think people should take a look at? Uh IMSA's Michelin Pilot Challenge, as uh, yep. Drew mentions, in terms of a theater series, they tend to put on a pretty good show almost everywhere that they go. Uh, Global MX5 Cup, for sure. <laughs> I believe that's all live streamy. Yeah, those guys beat the living poop out of each other. That's, uh, I mean, those things make, you know, nine horsepower or whatever it is. There, there's not a lot there, but, um, boy, there's, uh, there's some pretty, uh, pretty amazing stuff there to be had. So totally, totally forgot, by the way, VLN, the Nürburgring, uh, again, something with a live video feed, English language video feed, um, and, that, that it's it's madness in the best possible way. Uh, TV coverage now is pretty good of that. A vast array of machinery from uh, well, middle ranking sort of touring cars up to including, you know, factory level GT3 cars on the world's most challenging circuit. You can disagree. You'll be wrong. The Nürburgring is an astonishing place to go racing and a real window on the way it used to be. Uh, back in the day no runoff none um at all and the speeds are mind melting but take a look around uh, there's all sorts of other things to look at lots of gt3 racing around the world igtc goes to some fantastic circuits and for that matter place i started british gt championship v very unusual to actually have remarkably a championship that has gt3 and gt4 cars on track together British GT does, and it properly works. So if they get a decent grid coming together for 2021, then that's worth watching as well. Again, another championship that does do a free live stream. There we go. Uh, Where are we going next? We're going to go to, to Josh Ridgen, who asks about Alex Alban um, in DTM. And I think I bundled... Uh, another question on DTM into that one. Josh says it's been announced that the now ex-Formula 1 driver, Alex Albon, will be part of the new Red Bull-backed DTM efforts. It's a good sign for the Elder Series, new regulations, any news on expected car counts or other programs. Multi-levels to this. I think what's happening right now is a combination of teams being persuaded that this is going to be a package of high quality. 
because DTM always has been a package of high quality in terms of the way it presents itself in the paddock. What's not yet clear is just how much of that factory-based bonhomie and hospitality and presence is still going to be there. Um, we've got a number of teams having now committed several of them with multiple cars. We don't yet know what, uh, which team or which make of car the um, Red Bull backing is going to, but these are going to be customer race cars. That's number one. So in other words, it is teams looking for an avenue into something of quality. This is a very different kettle of fish to just about any other GT3 racing in the world. These are sprint races, single driver, and it will be, because young Mr. Alban may not be in Formula 1 anymore, but do not be convinced he's anything other than rocket ship fast. He is a quick boy. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. The other part of this is how much of a part of the drawing together of this is because people are working those intra-industry partnerships and relationships with a view to finding out whether or not they can make this work. They're going to get one shot at that. To be blunt, if it's crap, it'll fall on its face. If it doesn't work it will fall on its face and it will do so quickly. I sincerely hope that's not the case. I am struggling to be enthusiastic about this. The other question, by the way, which I'm struggling to find on the list, was a um, questioner asked whether or not uh, it was the case that we are still looking at actual GT3 cars or GT3+. Plus. It will be absolutely firmly GT3 standard cars, but with their own BOPs, they're very likely to be quicker than you would otherwise find uh, with, for instance, GT World Challenge. Um, but they will be just GT3 cars. No change in uh, aerodynamics, no change in uh, electronics. It, the, the only change will be for balance performance. So DTM has got a huge mountain to climb. They have targeted, I believe, 20 cars and five different GT3 manufacturers. The bit to watch for here is if anybody, and I'm looking at you, Gerhard Berger, um, is claiming that this indicates this big backing from insert name of factory, then that really needs to be a message coming from that factory. Because what I've been hearing from all of them is this is firmly customer racing. If there is presence from those manufacturers with a huge hospitality presence and motorhomes in the paddock, that's fundamentally different from, for the sake of arguing, Von Sant Voss turning up with everything he's got from WRT and putting on a good show. Without the former, you can't sustain the quality of product that has defined DTM over the last several decades. That's why you, when you walk into a DTM paddock, it's a wow moment in the same way as it's a wow moment in a Formula One paddock because the sheer weight of you know, yardage of money that's ploughed into making it look great, the experience that is going to be uh, doled out to the privileged guests and for that matter, the fan experience simply cannot be there if it's one guy or one sponsor funding one guy into one Mercedes AMG or Audi or McLaren or whatever else, that's going to be the defining part of it. Where's the money coming from to sustain that at the level that the punters 
and for that matter, the teams have been used to in DTM. Without that, at best, it looks like a regular GT3 race paddock. Not a bad thing, but that's not what's being sold at the moment. There we go. Uh, what what this one for you? is this one you can answer? Ricky Zagata with uh, love of LED LED panels in IndyCar and use in IMSA. When international teams race in IMSA, what goes into installing LED panels panels and removing the three light system? Uh I think the removing the three light system is pretty simple. It's either a change of door or they just switch it off. Yeah. Um this is a pretty straightforward thing, Ricky. It's just an uninstall and reinstall. Um, yep. So, yeah, a, I wish I had some in-depth thing to offer here, but uh, I don't. Uh, Kevin Payne, you ask, or you state, would be great if you could ex- expand on the plastic engine IMSA GTP car. That was uh, the poly motor. Uh, yeah, maybe... Uh, Maybe on a future episode, uh, with a reminder from you, I will uh, try and delve into that a little bit deeper. But yes, there was indeed an effort. Uh, this would have been in the Camel Lights class, roughly 300 horsepower uh, being produced in that class, where a four-cylinder motor with a, uh, a block made of plastic um, was indeed used. And I'm forgetting immediately the other plastic components. Um, but yeah, uh, good old good old days when you could try crazy stuff like that. Uh, one for you here, Graham. Joshua Barrett yeah. says, I'd love to hear any memories that Graham has regarding the legendary Brands Hatch commentator, Brian Jones, after he sadly passed away recently. Very sad. Um, Brian, I'm afraid, a victim of COVID-19 by the sound of things as well, which is sadder still. Um, it's cause for real sorrow for anybody that knew him, met him. Um, my memories of Brian, I think, as I said in a brief kind of um, tribute on Daily Sports Car, came when I was reintroduced effectively to Trackside Motorsport. And that came, it's a story I've told before on, on Twisk, when um, my first marriage broke up. And I had a then very young son, now in his 30s. Yes, that does make me feel old. And you get a choice at that point as a father. You're part of that child's life or you're not. There was never a question in my life, in my mind, that uh, that's what I wanted to do. And there was never a question either that I was going to be what I like to kind of say slightly dismissively and perhaps unfairly as a McDonald's dad. I'm not going to take him to have a happy meal and then take him back. I want to go and do things with him. We want to go and have adventures. And we started to go motor racing. Uh, We'd been before as a family and we continued to do that and actually went remarkably often when I could – when uh, my job allowed, um, we were at Brands Hatch for the most part. Later on, in the late 90s, uh, you know, um, uh, going a little further afield. But Brands Hatch, we were probably there every two or three weeks for a couple of three years. And, of course, Brian, who was the principal trackside commentator, was a very familiar voice. Ha- didn't meet him for, for several years um, but it was all, always one of those – I'm sure there are the same voices in the States, MP. When you arrive and you hear that voice, there's something about it. You just feel straight at home. You just feel as if this is going to be great. This is exciting. There's something about the tonality of a really good trackside commentator that has that mix between 
entertainment and information that is the the hallmark of a great communicator and brian was certainly that um learned more with his passing of the breadth of activity he got into as well which was the public speaking training the media training of young drivers and there was an absolute you know tsunami of drivers now rather older saying I owe so much because of the lessons we learned at the the classes he ran at the Thistle Hotel at Brands Hatch. I, I met Brian a couple of times, you know, as a as a fan, but met him again numerous times as a kind of uh, a fellow member of the media, if you like. Uh, at Brands Hatch, you pass the staircase where the uh, commentary booth was to get to the uh, media room, and he was regularly in the media room. And on a couple of occasions was invited to pick up the mic and co-commentate with him um, to a couple of brick car uh, race meetings, which was where Brian effectively finished his his, uh, his career once he moved on from Brands Hatch, uh, the brick car uh, operation, which is, if you're not aware what brick car is, it's uh, endurance touring car and GT race series based in the UK has been for many years and for several of those years Brian was their traveling commentator uh, a delightful man a delightful man you know in a world where in so many industries one of the defining characteristics of the the most well-known faces and names is ego he he wasn't ego he was fully aware of his standing and that, you know, people would turn when they heard the voice because it's that voice. But generous with his time and with his comments, and with his assistance. I mean, I was um, helping out on the mic before I did remotely as much um, commercial work on TV and radio as I do now. And off mic, he was extremely generous in terms of tips about how to do this slightly better Presumably at that point, I was totally rubbish. But I, I've heard the same from others. I've heard the same uh, from the likes of Paul Truswell in the past. This is long before uh, Brian passed away. But uh, Paul was, you know, uh, uh, an, an early uh, adopter, if you like, of, uh, of, of that. And we'll mourn his passing. Uh, a life well lived um, and doing what he was clearly passionate about for many, many, many years. Uh, but no doubt at all that his passing, and in particular the manner of his passing, is a is a cause of real sorrow for anybody that met him. I don't regard myself as a friend because I didn't know him well, but it's one of those MP where you see the name and it's the end, and there's that moment where you are genuinely sad that that's not a person you're going to experience again. Mm. Well, well remembered. Uh, let's see a couple others here. Dinesh Remisar. Hey there. He says to the guys over at Allard hire a bunch of time travelers to design the J two X C says it looks like it belongs more in an LMP one grid than a group C or GTP grid. It's a car that fascinated me from the beginning Dinesh. And even today, I think if we were to roll that onto a WEC or IMSA yep. grid, yep. folks would think it was from the future. That's how <laughs> outer spacey it was. Uh, of the many things that I endeavor to do, but have yet to do, it's to do a real deep dive into how that thing came together. 
what it is, what it was, what it was, and etc. Um, so yeah, uh, and for those who haven't seen it, please go and do some googling with uh, Allard J two X. I can help you with it. We we actually wrote about it in the first lockdown. I think I, I refreshed. I think it was a Mike Fuller piece. Uh, I give that a bit of a refresh uh, during lockdown. So for to fill in before someone who knows better and knows more about it than I do, uh, Dinesh, just pop Allard into the Daily Sports Car search engine. You'll find um, some fantastic photographs of that car in period and a little bit of the tale about how it all happened. Um, but it is one of those unicorn cars, isn't it? Always has been. Um, and it always felt like it was one of those cars also that had a little bit of promise unfulfilled. If you want to put that into kind of more modern context, I always see the Allard as being in the same sort of folder as maybe that Nissan LMP1. There we go. Now it's a great call. Um, Lister Stormy um, yes. as well. Yes obviously pre-lister storm but yeah just in that all right this really i I mean it was legal and they let it show up for a race but it really (laughs) wasn't something that should have maybe been totally accepted because it was so far out of left field so where do we go next my friend i think we go to josh johnson our uh regular witness protection um protectee who says, for the next round of GT3 homologation, could we see a targeted GT3, GT3 Plus built-in? Cars are developed from the beginning to offer an option for a pro and proud class. I think, you know what? We could see anything. I think a lot is yet to be determined. Um, little doubt in my mind that the Vanguard here is going to be in the United States with what IMSA are set to do. Uh, little doubt in my mind at all. Will that define what happens elsewhere? I think that's an altogether wider question. I think it's going to be a a very interesting period of time as to what happens post-2023 about whether or not there's going to be a thought that um, GT3 might have a place in international motorsports uh, beyond um, the places where it currently is. Are the ACO going to adopt it? I just don't know. It's the honest answer. They might. They might decide that they've got such a healthy prototype grid they don't need it. Um, and, you know, hold on to that part of it. But it's an option. And I think that's the other part. If you, if you look at the kind of – not quite the, the exciting things we're looking forward to, but the questions that are out there to be asked, that's one of them. What are we going to learn in the next 12 months about the future of GT Racing MP? Uh, we're, we're clearly going to learn some things. That much, I think, is pretty clearly obvious um, that we're going to be hearing some things about the way that uh, the world of GT racing is going to be shaped. But um, we've got the new GT3 rules coming in, 2022. Um, let's hope there's some pretty ones to come with the BMW. Um, but they might, they might start to think about whether or not you need to kind of accommodate uh, a wider spread of performance or do they just go with uh, the effectively the uh, the customer base they've got already and leave that to what you can do with development and technology? Yeah, we're yet to ask the question, remember, um, about electrification of GT racing uh, with the with the current cars. When does that come? Where does that come? Um, I think that's a hashtag wait and see. 
Scrolling down. Uh, we got a couple more here before we are done with Hegan. Uh, we're going to go to our pal John. Uh, oh, you hold on. Did I? We, I apologize. Did we get to John Richter's? We did get John Richter's. All right. So here's one that I might answer. Uh, any idea how the grid is shaping up for GT World Challenge in the U.S. and Europe? Healthier, obviously. He says, glad to see Mirko Bortolotti returning to Lamborghini after a very good 2020 with Audi. Uh, any reason behind the move back? Well, I'll leave that part for you. As for how the grid might be shaping up in the U.S., I have no idea, John. I've paid zero attention. Uh, I, I, that's a lie. I have paid a little bit of attention, and I saw that A, of course, just confirmed uh, what it's going to be doing, which is great, but... Turner BMW as well, I think, has been confirmed now. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of stuff here and there, but it is not going from strength to strength. It's not well, It's not going upwards in terms of aha, uh-huh, and it's coming back. And I, yeah, it's at a stage for hashtag me personally, Graham, where yeah. I don't know if it's going to pull out of this spiral towards pro-am, more am than pro-administration and appeal so it is great to see some name teams that we know uh, continuing to opt in but they they've effectively abandoned tcr for example um yeah i don't know where they're at they, they are the bicolis of sports car <laughs> racing teams i just don't have the full picture well i mean let, let me add this because i can talk a little bit about europe as well at the Spa press conference, the SRO, they talked about um, targeting a moderate improvement in grid. And I'm trying to remember whether or not that was taught. I think they talked about 15 GT3 cars. I think that was the number they gave. My apologies if that's wrong. I've got the other number I've got in my mind is 12. So 12 to 15. We've seen three confirmed in the last week or two. Uh, the aforementioned, of course, a Ferrari, Turner, BMW, and an Ian Lacey, Aston Martin, I think I'm right, yeah. which is the first of the new shape Aston Martin GT3s. So it's plodding towards a grid. Is it going to burst into flower? The answer is no, it isn't. Um, it's a terrible time to be trying to build a grid at the moment. As for Europe, that was it's never in doubt really that they're going to be okay in terms of numbers. There are uh, there's two other things happening in Europe at the moment that could be significant in terms of what happens with GT World Challenge. The first is big effort from SRO to bolster their gentleman driver customer base with the. Um, advent, they hope, of G- the GT2 class uh, coming into more focus and this new Rebellion series, uh, three endurance races for gentlemen drivers only. The other one, which I'm talking to a couple of teams this week about, which is still yet to be explained to me, is why they've made a couple of moves on the driver lineups that you can... I mean, British, British GT is a great example of this, where they have... They, towards the end of last year, decided to get rid of the Silver Cup, which is Silver Silver Drivers in British GT. Now, so so much so not interesting, you may say, other than the fact that that was half their grid. Uh, they had a decent number of cars for, I mean, you know, we just said 15, not impressive grid for North America. Something like 13, 14 in the UK were a much smaller marketplace. Um 
But and by the way, we have GT4 on the same grid, saying a little earlier. But to get rid, to effectively regulate out half of your grid, there has to be a reason why you're doing that. Um, and the only reason I can really come up with is they are hoping that those teams and drivers will be attracted to moving to Europe and to bolster in particular the European Sprint Series. So that has all got to kind of play its way out. Add into the mix that since all of these conversations happened, we've seen, okay, it's not a major impact, but Lexus withdrawing their interest in um, GT3 racing in Europe. That means you you know lose the one car we had in GT World Challenge. Slightly more significantly, Bentley the same, no factory backing there. There will be some customer cars, but nothing like the numbers we saw previously. And there's a lot of unknowns. Am I predicting an absolute meltdown in GT3 numbers in the major series? No, I'm fundamentally not. What I'm saying here is that there are some previously known knowns which are no longer known. As for Mirko Portolotti, I'll ask him the question next week. I'll see him in Dubai, uh, ask him the question next week. But I think the answer there is that um, they probably gave him a better offer. Simple as that. There we go. Let's see. Kevin Perez Frederico says, hey, Graham, there seems to be conflicting reports. Now, that's that's the question I said earlier. That's oh, I apologize. Was, I forgot so to cross fine. that uh, one that's, off. So, Kevin, the answer, the answer there is because uh, there's all sorts of stuff that have been mentioned, bigger aero, much bigger power, uh, reduction of some of the electronic aids. They are going to be FI GT3 spec cars. End of. Uh, let's see. Ed Joris asking, do we think – Reporters and other event staff will be required to prove they've been vaccinated against COVID before getting access to pit lane. I would have to say no, (laughs) considering the rollout, Ed, is one where uh, first responders, the elderly, nursing care, you know, if how's this, if this were the case, there would be no reporters or staff on pit lane because I can think of few, if any, who would qualify just talking domestically here that would fall into the first wave of vaccination approvals. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point. It's a, the, the other part of this is what access we're going to be getting anyway and how quickly that comes back. So as a, for instance, there are a number of race meetings. Number one, I've not been in a team's garage uh, since February of last year. That's not permitted in any racing that I go to. Uh, in many cases, we're not permitted in the paddock. Um, it, the Rolex 24, I think there's good. Is it paddock and garage access or just garage access? I can't remember. Um, so the answer here is our, our access is very much restricted. Depending where the press room is, you may not be allowed in the paddock at all. It's not a dissimilar situation for some places with photographers. And in some uh, instances, photographers do not work out of a fixed point facility, but are working from their car. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff going on at the moment, which is adding to the challenge of covering some of those races. And to be blunt, making the decision as to whether or not it's worth going to those races, because actually in certain instances, what you're restricted to is the opportunity to sit in a room and watch a timing screen and a TV screen. And frankly, I can do that just as well from the seats I'm sitting in right here right now as I can spending a thousand dollars getting on a plane and flying somewhere else in the world to do exactly that yes it does have some other advantages but 
there's an economy of scale that comes into play here. These things are playing out. It will clearly get better in time, but we are not at a, a, a point right now where I can tell you that I can predict a point where there's going to be unfettered um, access to do the things that we did just a year ago. I'm going to answer one here from Jose Tapia, who said, who decided blue should be the color to denote being laughed? was a gentleman by the name of Frank Johnson. Uh, okay. No, but I mean, how the hell are we going to answer that? I mean, it's just one of those things like, <laughs> what? Um, thanks, Jose, by the way. That was a great little interlude there. Uh, do you want to take uh, question 19 from uh, Jacob Bame? Yay, Hegeneral. I think that's his whole name. And also, there's a number 20 question here from Jacob as well. So, Jacob Beam, Hegeneral, is going to keep resending it until we read it, damn it. Let's not bother reading it now. Go on then. No. As of the second hour of the episode 996, is that what we're talking about here? Apparently. Um, the, of the Marshall Pruitt podcast, the Twiskenry uh, had reached a number of uh, of hundred, in words, one hundred separate misspelled, misshapen, and otherwise mutilated entries. The hundredth entry was Marshall Pruitt's awful, utterly awful creation of the word air freitas, meaning WC race director traveling to races by plane. <laughs> Along with entry number 101 from later in the episode, and entries with multiple variants, it brings up to a tally of 113 113 word chats. Congratulations, not. I'm proud. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah. Screw you, Jacob. I mean, <laughs> don't you, aren't you jealous you could come up with 113 misspelled, misshapen, and otherwise mutilated entries. And for those who don't know, our pal Jacob here started keeping track of all of the malapropisms, bad pronunciationisms, and whatnot. Maybe we got 114 now. Uh, and has thrown them into a Google Doc slash spreadsheet uh, that he refers to as the Weekend Sports Card Dictionary, the Twictionary for short, and uh, he has kept it, and he he continues to add to it. So yes, I guess do we take a virtual bow at crossing? I mean, we crossed a thousand episodes, and we crossed one hundred entries in the Twictionary. It sounds like you know pretty darn similar timeline. Episode nine ninety six of the podcast, we reached one hundred there, and then episode one thousand, we got to one thousand. So uh, yeah, Air Freitas. I mean. If he were a ex, if Eduardo Freitas, WC race director, was an excellent basketball player in the vein of Michael Jordan, Air Jordan, maybe we'd call him Air Freitas as well. So maybe that's 115. Number 20, it's another guy called Jacob Bain. That's a coincidence. Uh, militaries of the world are known to be using obsolete computer equipment for the sake of simpler maintenance and safety against modern electronic warfare. But how does it work in sports car racing? Do teams use some old but simple and reliable technologies to cope with problems arising throughout the race, or do they resort to more sophisticated equipment? Disclaimer, using a Bushu brand hammer to fix bodywork doesn't count. Before I'm going to let you answer that question, by the way, MP. Aww. But just add, just add this: I'm actually writing um, a story at the moment, uh, another story in a series I'm doing to do with the postmodern historic cars, uh, the uh, Masters Endurance Legends cars, and uh, latest interview 
is to do with one of the preparers of multiple of those cars, and in particular the latest one they've done is Jim Matthews' uh, Riley and Scott 3C, which actually carried daily sports car stickers at Le Mans. Uh, They were talking about um, upgrading the electronics suite on the cars that they um, restore uh, and maintain, principally to ensure that the... Uh, the cars don't need factory uh, engineering support at historic race meetings. That They can do that within the resources in their own team. So whilst it's a distinct upgrade, um, what it also means is that one trained person can manage the systems throughout that car rather than having to have an engineer from, for the sake of arguing, AER or Zytec on site, that the team's own engineer can do all of it. So that's just – that's a slight aside – doesn't mean it undermines the value of that car as an historic uh, racing asset, but it is something that is is done on multiple cars you'll see out there uh, racing in historic racing. Uh, as for the outdated technology stuff, they do try to keep it simple as best they can, but for the most part, it's serviceability, isn't it? Well, I mean, Jacob, by the way, this is his uh, new fascination by entering the obscure question of the week. Uh, if we're talking about teams and technology, what comes with most cars, whatever it is, GT, touring car, prototype, at least these days, there's often a lot of specness to it. So, you know, Bosch will be chosen as the official ECU supplier of whatever, or McLaren, or pick whatever it might be. Uh, Cosworth will be the spec data system supplier. So, in that regards, the onboard technology, in most instances, there's nothing truly crazy and inventive. When we're talking LMP1 hybrid, uh, when we're talking hypercar, I think, of course, we'll see some different and interesting things because rules permit uh, creativity. But if we're talking on the team side, uh you'll find that most teams use modern-ish laptops to carry out their duties. You'll see some significant computing investments made within bigger manufacturer-type teams, uh, even just bigger teams in general. I mean, we can say Formula One, obviously, every team has tons of computing power uh, on the ground, but they also rely heavily, more heavily, on the computing power back at their respective factories. Uh, in IndyCar, I know, for example, there are teams that uh, do this as well, where they run a lot of simulation, what they can locally, but more often they will send back that list to uh, whatever their, wherever their shop slash factory might be and have those bigger computers, a uh, bigger server farm firing, over, firing away uh, overnight to uh, come back with, simulation answers and whatnot for looking at what's on pit lane uh, you'll just find a fair amount of fairly normal brands in terms of laptops most of them are being used to run um i mean whether it's race strategy software timing and scoring software uh all the various data apps right uh to pull data crunch data and whatnot so it's not as if you need some light speed whatever laptop to do all of that type stuff but how's this where you might think uh 
pit lanes and IMSA and WEC and wherever else and all the race engineers, data engineers, and otherwise are walking around with, you know, Alienware laptops or some, you know, three, four, five thousand dollar rocket ship. Eh, tend not to see that so much. You tend to see that, all right, what's powerful enough to do all of this, but isn't going to cost a fortune. Maybe the final little thing to mention here, just on the more pit lane transportable technology like that, there's the travel aspect, Graham. For sure. And I know that while I have tended to spend a decent amount on high-end fast laptops for a while, all because I'm trying to render, you know, HD video in a short amount of time and post it for a client. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of movement with uh, laptops and whatnot, uh, whether it's flying, whether it's bouncing around in a, uh, in a truck and transporter um, just getting hauled back and forth to pit lane, rain, and whatever, whatever else. There's another philosophy of, hey, <laughs> these things aren't necessarily going to last us many, many years. They might be a little bit more on the disposable uh, approach. So let's get what we need, but we're not going to break the bank on some super amazing laptop that you can take back to your hotel at the end of the day and do hours of 3d 4d gaming and whatever else because it has that kind of horsepower so at least for what i see in terms of laptops and that kind of stuff transportable bits uh good stuff but rarely like ooh, wow look at that so i think that's just a function though of, uh, a lot of moving around things get beaten up and uh things fail as a result um i know we'll that, next yeah well i know that we had a couple things in imsa and eh. Uh, I would say at almost an hour and a half in, Graham, I would suggest we maybe move on to FUN, maybe, possibly. Let's do that thing. And you're going to take the first one. Uh, Post it to yourself. Yep. Uh, Which drivers need New Year's resolutions and what should they be? Comes from Ricky Zagata, taking inspiration apparently for the Weekend IndyCar show. Which of those drivers need to make New Year's resolutions? What should they be? Well, the first one I'm going to say is going to be an IMSA driver. That's yeah. Pipo Durali. We knew answer, this is where we're going, right? Uh, the, the answer to Pipo is, Pipo, genuinely, buddy, I love you dearly. You are lovely. You need to breathe. Just breathe. Breathe. That's it. Pippo, stopo. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. That, that's a good one. Who else? <sighs> good question. Nicky team needs a comb. Um, but I can talk at the moment looking like the wild man for the West right now. It's a great question, isn't it? Wish I'd thought about this one before uh, we, before it came our way. It's not like we're doing episode two and we haven't seen this question here for a couple of days. But yeah, I, I would just um, okay. say it. I don't know. I'll come back to it. Let me have a think about that one. Let's move on to James Counter. Hot or maybe lukewarm take, he says. Paul Dallana has had no success of the great race, Le Mans, because he once spelt Le Mans wrong. Uh, it is fair to say that Paul Dallana must have the cartoon anvil on a bungee uh, when at Le Mans because it always uh, – I, mean, I mean, at the moment, I've just finished writing part two of a – 
retrospective on uh, Aston Martin racing in the GTE classes to mark the end of their efforts in GTE Pro. And, you know, you could have made fun of it. It's that predictable that he always has terrible luck at Le Mans, only it's just not funny. Um, but I think it's just because he's Canadian and too nice. Is it that? Yeah, it is. Uh has he kind of stopped just, lathering just, himself just, up in in honey though uh <coughs> i think that was to keep bears away is that what works that? Uh, again so yeah there there's a couple things we need a canadian shaman of some sort to help get paul completely sorted because i don't think sports car racing fans will allow him to retire at whatever point in time without a class victory at le mans um we might even need to hold his own private 24 hours of Paul <laughs> at Circuit de la Sarthe. And in theory, once he reaches minimum distance, which I believe is 24 hours, uh, he'd be declared the victor. So one way or the other, I'm open to both ideas. But yes, uh, Paul Dallalana must win the 24 hours of Le Mans. That's a hashtag we need to start trending. He, he, he is a super, super bloke. Uh, the first time I properly met Paul Delana, by the way, I'll tell this little tale. Uh, it doesn't answer the question anyway. Uh, it was at Sebring. And you might remember this, uh, MP, in that uh, we'd come from Daytona. This, might, I think, might be 2014, first year of the, the Judy United Sports Car Championship, where he got a couple of bad calls in both GTD and in the Pilot Challenge, uh, he got shafted in both, without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, there was a question. He was running at the time a Z4 BMW, C4 BMW and GTD with Will Turner. And there was a question at the time as to whether or not Paul would turn up for Sebring. And uh, so I went along to the awning um, introduced myself to Mr. Will Turner, and he said, well, tell you what, let's find out. I'll get him on the phone. So while I was standing there, he rang Paul, and Paul's answer was more or less exactly this. You'll know I'm coming if you see my effing Learjet uh, fly into the tech trailer at IMSA. What? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, he wasn't a very happy man at that point. Bless him, bless him. But he's he is genuinely one of the... The nicest guys, almost always, apart from when he's at Le Mans, uh, a smile on his face. Uh, bless him, and I hope he comes back for more. Um, another one from James Counter, with Frédéric Lequy appointed at the head of LMEM. Given his rally raid history, have we now found what's going to replace GTLM in the form of the Dakar trucks? If they did, do you think some of the rude prototype drivers would suddenly manage to avoid squeezing and running into GTLM cars? Dakar trucks are GTLM cars. There have been some absolutely terrible accidents in those things for Dakar this year. There's one that effectively I saw Philip crossing the finish line of the stage, effectively the truck broken in half. Um, Dakar trucks at Le Mans or at uh, Daytona, that'd be a thing, wouldn't it? Man, M-A-N, all caps, right? I mean, it's like a, a, a 20-foot-tall brick with wheels. Yes, I want to see tons of those. And talking about wood router prototype drivers suddenly avoid hitting those GTL, air quote GTLM cars. <laughs> I don't think that would be what was happening. I think if you've got some giant Dakar truck type thing 
uh, I think you are actively taking out all the prototypes within the first 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes of whatever race. So that way you can just go and have fun among yourselves. So I think it's quite the opposite. Yo, a hundred percent. Right. I mean, uh, yes. So I'm all about, look, you know, you got to use your size to your advantage. So, uh, knock those farts out of the way and then just go play and have fun. So there's a a great Twitter question this week, which got a variety of answers about, uh, which drivers have done this, this, and this. And, doesn't matter which ones it was. It was in relation to a guy called Liam Griffin, who's doing the Dakar this year. And Liam has also done Le Mans, and he's also done the British Touring Car Championship. But that led to all sorts of other things. Two um, big names uh, I can give you that have competed in the Dakar in a truck, one of which is Jan Lammers, uh, who uh, has done a number of rally raids in in trucks. Um, And another who actually won it, I think, in 1984, Jos Capito. Wow. Um, yeah, now at Williams, uh, previously at McLaren F1 in senior management p- uh, positions, but was the co-driver, I think, in 84, and won the Dakar Rally. Um, you look down those entry lists, there are some names. There really are some astonishing names have, have taken part uh, in it. One of the other ones, by the way, was the only man. I think this came from uh, my uh, my good mate, Adam, um, who says that the only person to have taken part in Formula One and done Dakar on two wheels, intentionally on two wheels, Philippe Alio. Wow. Dakar on a bike. We are Motorbike, a- I should say winning the wacky trivia well speaking of wacky take us home my friend i'll take us home uh without giving any more drivers that need new year's resolutions because i haven't had time to think about it and i've realized that my my uh, power pack is not charging the computer and we're down to a single digit number um thanks once again uh, for the astounding number of questions that were sent in this week for the week in sports cars this is the end of part two of our first uh week back in the new year First of all, we of course will say thank you to you, the listeners. I'll say thank you to you, Marshall Pruitt. But we always, as always, say thank you to the people that back us uh, to do this every week. That's uh, Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. I've been Graham Goodwin across the pond. He has been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Week in Sports Cars. And next week, I'll join you from Dubai.